0: Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here, and it is really a delight for me to be able to spend some time with Robert Wagoner and to introduce you to his remarkable work. Um, So I want to start by just sharing a little bit about who Robert is and then just jump right in, because there is just a lot of stuff that uh, we can talk about. So Robert is the author of the acclaimed book, Uh, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, which is now in its 10th printing. He's also the co author of the award winning book, Lucid Dreaming Plain and Simple, with Caroline McCready. Both books are available in a number of different um, audible formats, and they have been translated into a number of different languages, including French, German, Chinese, Korean, Czech, and Finnish. Robert is a past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And he actively serves as a co-editor of the online magazine, The Lucid Dreaming Experience, which is really the only ongoing publication devoted specifically to lucid dreaming. A lucid dreamer since 1975, Robert has logged more than 1,000 lucid dreams. He frequently speaks on the science and practice of lucid, lucid dreaming at international dream conferences, workshops, and college classrooms. And so Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, I am really impressed with the body of your work, your dedication to this topic, and the fact that uh, you have had such an extensive personal history with this material. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks.
1: Thanks. Uh, It's just great to be here. I appreciate the uh, invitation.
0: Yeah, truly. And so I want to start, I'm always so interested, as, as our listeners are, with how people got interested in this um, topic because, you know, for many it still remains somewhat on the fringe, a little bit esoteric, but um, as you and I both know, it has just such tremendous potential for psychological, um, spiritual, and even physical development. So can you give us a brief riff on what turned you on to lucid dreaming? What were the pivotal experiences in your life that turned you towards this direction? Right. So, um, uh... If you can imagine
1: this, uh, back in 1975, I was a junior in high school, and I was reading the third book by Carlos Castaneda, *Journey to Ixtlan*. And in that book, his shamanic teacher Don Juan tells him that he can find his hands in the dream state and become consciously aware of dreaming. And I, I wondered, is this really possible? Could you could you find your hands in the dream state? But as I looked for a technique, there really wasn't a technique, and so um, I knew about the power of suggestion. So each night before I'd go to sleep, I'd, I'd just look at the palms of my hands while repeatedly in my mind, quietly saying, Tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. Tonight in my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. And I'd do that for about five minutes and fall asleep. On the third night of doing this practice that I created, Um, I'm walking through my high school hallway, and suddenly, just like they're spring-loaded, my hands pop right in front of my face, and I go, oh, my hands. This is a dream. Uh And and it it was so incredible to realize that those football players over there, uh, Uh they were were dream figures. And and this wall that felt so cool and nubby, just like it should, was, was actually dream stuff. And, and so I, I stepped out of, uh, I think it's the B Hall at Hutchison High School, stepped out of it, and I was looking at the ad- brick on the administration building because the detail was so just profound. And so suddenly the lucid dream began to shake like it was getting ready to collapse. And that's when I remembered that uh, Don wanted said uh, not to stare at anything for too long, but if you did, just look back at your hands uh, to uh, increase the power of dreaming or to to continue the dream. And when I look back at my hands, the most incredible thing happened. Suddenly, I became a dot of awareness floating through the palm, the palm print of my hand. And it was so wild to look up, knowing that I was in the palm print of my hand and see these kind of uh, flesh-toned canyons that I was maneuvering through and then finally, I, I kind of uh, willed myself back to normal size, decided to go fine, got so excited I woke up. So that, that was my very first uh, consciously induced lucid dream back in April of
0: 1975. Well, that's pretty impressive. That's, a, that's a, quite the big bang to get you started in this. And you know, one thing, Robert, that's really struck me with your work, um, and this is what uh, some of the topics I want to cover with you is. Just the scope of what you cover. You're you're one of these really innovative researchers and onironauts who is com- uh, completely attuned to the potentialities of these nocturnal practices and how they're much more than just mere entertainment. Which is usually, as as we both know, how lucid dreaming is marketed and sold. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of sexy and it's cool and it's the ultimate in home entertainment, but your work is unique in that it really does create such a wide lens. And in particular for me, Robert, what I was struck with when I read your work was how confluent a great deal of it was to um, so-called Eastern thought, and in particular my um, familiarity with the Tibetan Buddhist practices of dream yoga and sleep yoga. And you, you, you immediately just painted on it right here when you talk about um, your experience as a dot of awareness because... You know i'm sure you know at this point these dots of awareness in the uh, tibetan language are called bindus and they're uh, sometimes like essence sometimes they're called mind pearls or you know referred to as the essence of awareness and so for for you to actually have that um is it is just really fantastic because it shows that when we explore these deeper dimensions of of mind that um there's a kind of a commonality a trans um disciplinary even trans religious commonality and so for you to come across these things and and to riff on them the way you do is i think really uh, pretty encouraging for me um and so i want to come back to some of those other connections later but in your you know extensive experience over these many decades um and it's difficult to probably answer this but what has impacted you the most with your exploration of uh, the nocturnal mind
1: well um, in, in my first book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, um, um, I tried to talk a little bit about my journey deeper into lucid dreaming. And um, so again, I, I became lucidly aware uh, consciously for the first time in 1975, but everyone should think that the scientific evidence for lucid dreaming did not emerge until five or six years later, basically right. in 1981. And, and so for five years, um, I was having lucid dreams, learning about the methods, the principles, how to stabilize lucid dream, how to move and influence things, mm-hmm. how, how to do all sorts of things. And, and so uh, the, the beauty of having to do it all by yourself is that you learn the lessons so well. Uh, you don't read them in a book. You don't just accept somebody else's uh, uh, secondhand opinion. You learn it firsthand. And so, so the, some of the most impactful things were that in 1985, um, I was part of a lucid dreaming group that every month we had a practice or a, or a goal to achieve. And, and this went on for three years, e- each month would have a new goal. And, and it was the spring of 1985, and that month the goal was find out what the dream figures in your lucid dream represent. Yeah, and so I thought I thought that's a piece of cake. I I can do that. And so, so I became lucidly aware. Uh, followed a woman into an office. Uh, walked up to a man in a three-piece suit and asked him, "Excuse me, what do you represent?" Right. And, and at that moment, I felt so stunned when a partial response came booming out of the space high above him. And and I found this so perplexing that I, I asked it for a full response, and then it boomed out the full response. And um, I, I felt quite surprised that the dream figure did not respond, that the, the space above him boomed out a response. Mm-hmm. And so after that, um, I began to wonder, is there an awareness behind the dream?
0: Right. Because
1: in waking life, we're, we're conditioned or socialized to interact with you know, people and pets and things and and to think that there might be an awareness behind the dream that you could interact with in a lucid dream just, just seemed quite profound. But but that's what I discovered is uh, after that, I in lucid dreams, I would just ignore the dream figures and shout out a question uh, to the larger awareness, like, show me something important for me to see. And then suddenly something would occur in the lucid dream or the entire lucid dream would change, and I'd be looking at something important to see. And I began to explore it deeper. You know, could you experience concepts? And 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 I was just stunned at this new level of lucid dreaming, because before, when you interact with dream figures, you'll find that they're very um, they're very varied. Uh, all dream figures are not created equal. Some, <laughs> some of them some of them are are, are uh, uh, non-responsive. Uh, don't have any glint of awareness in their eyes. But but others are so responsive and so, so thoughtful and intelligent that, that uh, you, you have to really think about what they're telling you. But, but that was my first uh, hint that there was really something truly powerful there. And uh, so I kept going deeper. And then after, as I mentioned in my book, after about 20 years, I realized that lucid dreaming was a co-created experience uh, of the ego waking self uh, along with the larger awareness and that every dream was a co-creation of the self and the larger awareness and even the waking experience was a co-creation of the self and the larger awareness and that's when I decided um, to try to go beyond lucid dreaming and um, in, in my book I mention the the vast array of strange experiences that began to happen then But basically uh, Spending the whole night in the light and, and uh, not actually having dreams at all. so so the, those are some of the um, hallmarks along the way, but uh, the, the, there's been there's been a lot of them. When, when you have forty years of lucid dreaming, you, you can find a lot of impactful stuff.
0: Yeah, you start to rack up some some incredible stories. and I, I have to share Robert very briefly. Um, and I want to develop this a little bit with you. i I, I had a, a quite a compelling series of lucid dreams. I just came back from Korea and that the, the uh, jet lag and whatnot um, interrupted my sleep in a really kind of wonderful way. And I had just a host of really long extended, what I sometimes call lucid dreams. And one in particular that's completely resonant with what you're talking about, was I had one just a couple of days ago, where I was going, it was a pretty strong lucid dream, and I was going downstairs, um, which again is somewhat symbolic, kind of dropping into this kind of seedy environment, this kind of uh, sailor's type bar. And there were there are a bunch of you know kind of gnarly gritty weather beaten type of characters in there you know kind of edgy feeling and as and as I came down and, and kind of you know came up to them I, I I looked at them for a while and then I said hey like you know who are you guys like what are you doing here and there was this uh, you know pause kind of a long pause and then and then one of the characters says. In this heavy Australian accent, he said, "I mate, we're just your unconscious mind," and it was bloody fantastic because, you know, here, here I was thinking I'm somewhat well evolved in my psycho-spiritual path, and of course, you know, these were indicative or representative of these kind of uh, seedy, shady elements of my unconscious mind making themselves present. And as we know, this, you know, the, one of the characteristics of a lucid dream. Sometimes also deferred as a hybrid state of consciousness, is in fact a unique opportunity for the conscious mind to face the unconscious mind directly. But if you could say a little bit more about um, when you ascribe, what, to, to what do you ascribe this kind of background awareness? Do you, do you ascribe it to just the deeper dimensions of your own unconscious mind, or is there an attribution to what you see as this kind of background of your actual dreamscape? Have you, have you thought about it or articulated it? Well, um, so, 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 so j- just to
1: uh, discuss it, I mean, there's a number of ways a person could conceive of it, uh, but but when you begin to interact with the, I just call it the larger awareness or the awareness behind the dream, mm-hmm. um, y- you realize that it can show you things. Uh, for, for example, in my second book, uh, Lucid Dreaming Plain and Simple, uh, my co-author Carolyn McCrady Once she becomes lucid and she announces a dream, show me my greatest fear. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, she said in front of her, there was death. And so I, I believe it was death in the form of the hooded man with the with the scythe and the whole thing. And she said she got so freaked out seeing her greatest fear that 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 she spontaneously woke. And then when she rolled over in bed, uh, guess who was laying by her death? She had she had had a false awakening, uh, and then she woke up for good. Mm-hmm. But but she said when she when she woke up, she realized that that death really was one of her great fears, or, or probably her greatest fear. And so she began to read books about death and dying and and how to uh, think about it and and kind of come to terms with it. And then I, I believe it was about a month later, she 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 reported that. Uh, she became lucidly aware, and this time she shouted out, hey, dream, show me my greatest fear. And once again, death appeared. And this time she looked at death, and she had a feeling of understanding and comprehension. And she said, as she basically accepted uh, the necessity for death, death stepped towards her, and she said she stepped towards death. And as they met, uh, just the room exploded in delight. And and oftentimes you see this when you accept a dream figure or, or a projection uh, of yourself. But 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 the reason I bring this up is that this background awareness, it's just not random. It just doesn't randomly cough up responses or images or whatever. Uh, oftentimes they're they're very very appropriate to the person who makes the request. And also there's many numerous occasions um, like. In my book, I mentioned uh, Pascale Urtain. Uh, she has a big website, ld for all And, and w- once in a lucid dream, she shouted out, show me the beginning and end of the universe. <laughs> then, then, then the non-visible voice, which is what I call the awareness behind the dream, this non-visible voice replied, the universe has no beginning and has no end. The universe is an everlasting cycle. Yeah, and and so you'll see that this larger awareness also refutes uh, uh, presumptions or assumptions and, and will, will offer um, alternative uh, ideas instead. And so when you really get into it, you realize that this background awareness, whether it's the collective unconscious or a person's inner self or, heaven forbid, the soul, whatever it is, whatever is this, this larger awareness, it actually cares about the person, it, it's uh, very thoughtful, it, um, it, it, it meets all these characteristics that, that Jung, Carl Jung, uh, identified as what you would have to show to identify a second psychic system within man. It, it shows all those characteristics of judgment, reflection, affectivity. Memory, imagination, will, all of those things in subliminal form. so so it's it's really uh, quite profound and and the reason I think it's profound, uh, as I get on my soapbox just a little bit longer, it is because it allows us to expand the identity of what we conceive of as the self.
0: exactly.
1: and And uh, when we begin to expand the identity of what we conceive of as the self, that, then I think we come into more of our whole person and, and we just don't end up this waking ego conscious whatever thing. Uh, we, we realize that there's more going on here.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really well said. And, and a couple of things just to, to um, kind of interject. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the term false awakening, but some may not. And so for those of you who are not aware, aware of that term that Robert used, a false awakening is when you wake up, from a dream thinking that you've woken up to reality only to have this kind of startling, revelatory discovery that in fact, what you've woken up to is yet another dream. So obviously this is typified in like movies like Inception. Sometimes I think I, I refer to them, uh, Robert, as recursive dreams, you know, dreams held within dreams, um, which as you know, within the wisdom traditions goes exceptionally profound because, you know, the idea with these traditions is that in fact, when we wake up from the so-called nighttime dream, Um, we're still, if we see the world dualistically, if we see it as solid lasting, we're still asleep in so-called daytime um, reality. So that in fact is a false awakening to which and from which the the Buddhas, the awakened ones, as you know, woke up from. Um, And so it's a wonderful intimation of psychospiritual development altogether. Um, And it's in fact, one of the the ways that uh, Buddhist tradition in particular uses the nighttime dream you know it's used as what's referred to as a, a an example dream or a double delusion as a way to extrapolate the insights into the so-called primary dream or real delusion which is so-called waking reality um but i really I want to explore further I and mean, what you're saying is just so compelling completely resonant with my view and this idea of you know this larger awareness as you're suggesting is is that these deeper dimensions is utterly transpersonal um you know it's, it's it kind of suggests not only what Jung referred to as the collective unconscious, but especially in the Buddhist tradition, what could be referred to as the collective superconscious, that um, even below what Jung referred to as this kind of of common bed of mind, quote-unquote, to which not only all humans, but all sentient beings arise and return to. And so to me, I mean, that's what's so cool about what you do, Robert, is is that you take your... um, kind of training, your your understanding, and your reading, and your experience, and you would just you just blow the doors wide open to the world of lucid dreaming, and that's what I found so illuminating and so rich, and so in addition to what you were talking about, you know, what has impacted you, I suppose this is another way to ask it. What has surprised you the most? I mean, have you had some experiences in, in your um, adventures as a lucid dreamer that really surprised you or even um, scared you? <laughs> well, uh, one thing that you learned uh,
1: quite early on in lucid dreaming um, is that is that uh, is that fear is like an invisible fence. Um, we all stay within our comfort zone, even in the lucid dream. Uh, and it's it's only by confronting our fears and resolving them. Uh, do we begin to grow? Do we allow that kind of mental or psychic space to grow, and keep growing and growing and growing? Uh, and so I I learned early on in lucid dreams that um, that that fear uh, led to shutting down, fear led to retreat, fear led to um, a lack of growth, and, and 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 that that just wasn't where I was at. My goal as a lucid dreamer early on, and my basic intent uh, throughout was, was to understand the actual nature of reality. And, and I don't know why I thought lucid dreaming might be a, a path to that, but, but uh, it, it was really my true intent. I, I wanted to understand what is the actual nature of reality? How, how are things created? Why, why do things exist as they do? And, and lucid dreaming is beautiful for that because it's so mentally reflective and mentally dynamic. And so for those who haven't had a lot of lucid dreams, I'll just explain what I mean by that. Uh, For example, uh, let's say you became lucidly aware and wanted to fly through that wall. You know the wall is composed of dream stuff, and, and so you ought to be able to fly right through it. And so once in a lucid dream, I did that. I became lucidly aware in this kind of big sanctuary or something, and I flew out of it and found myself on kind of a college campus and was flying around, but then at the end of the lucid dream I decided to fly back to the starting point point. and as I flew up to that building from the other side, well now the brick seems so uh, substantial and real and solid that when I got up to it I got stuck halfway through. <laughs> Uh, I, I, but because I had this momentary doubt this momentary expectation or belief that that it was really substantial and and, uh, and then when I realized I was stuck halfway through I, I realized how preposterous this was and I expected my way through it but, but you realize in a lucid dream that that it will reflect your expectations and your beliefs it'll reflect your intent and focus and, and so as you get deeper into lucid dreaming, you realize that you um, have to observe your mind in the moment because your mind is helping to create, uh, to, to energize those projections uh, in the dream state. And, and for me, that that was really, really important. But as I went deeper, I realized that fear w- was was what was holding me back. So I would always try to resolve my fears. And whenever I became lucidly aware and there was a lot of energy, I would go to where the energy was. So if I went over there and it's an epic World War II battle, I I would sit there and observe it. Or if Mm -hmm. I went there and it was a giant wedding and celebration, uh, I would go there and observe. I always went to the area of the most energy. And and that was so helpful as I uh, kept going deeper into lucid dreaming. But but I got to a certain point w- where it was is actually quite funny. <laughs> in some lucid dreams, I would see a banner in the sky and the banner would say, trust, nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. A- a- and th- then other times I'd be in a lucid dream and a voice behind me, which I assumed was the larger awareness, it would say, trust, nothing to fear. And so I felt as I kept going deeper and deeper that I was being encouraged um, and actually supported in in my fearlessness of continuing to go deeper and deeper. But but to get to that point, uh, after 20 years of lucid dreaming, when I decided that the only way to understand lucid dreaming and if there really was a real reality was to try to go beyond lucid dreaming. And so when I... Focused on that, I began to have the most uh, unusual set of experiences. Um, I'd fall asleep at night, at, at first, and and the entire night would be nothing but blue light. Yeah.
0: Know.
1: And and I remember the first time that happened, I woke up and I thought, "What the hell? What what do I put in my dream journal? Blue light? I mean, there is." There's no me, no action, no symbols, no plot, no nothing. It was It's just the entire night, uh, this kind of blue light. And, and this kept occurring and reoccurring. And I, I remember one morning, um, uh, I went down to the breakfast table, and there's my wife, and, and and she looked at me, and, and in a very concerned voice, she, she asked me, what, what's going on with you? What's happening? And I, I asked her why she would ask me that. And, and she said, well, last night, I woke up, and I think I looked at your face and I've never seen somebody in such incredible bliss before. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. so what's, what's happening to you? And I said, well, I'm I'm trying to understand the actual nature of reality and I'm having some pretty wild experiences. Yeah. And, and so, so there's stuff that began to happen after that, but, but that really surprised me. I, I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget the first time, um, Uh, the experience of just falling asleep and the entire night was blue light. Uh, I'll never forget just the surprise because I had read nothing that would suggest that even would occur. Uh, You you have to realize that um, I grew up in the middle of Kansas um, from a, from a Protestant family. And and we have a long line of uh, teachers and preachers in, in our family. And, um, and and nothing nothing had uh, prepared me for for uh, when I was going deeper and deeper into lucid dreaming. So so uh, the so I can never say I was scared because I learned that fear keeps you in your comfort zone, but basically your comfort zone is death. It's right. it's not growth. It's it's not uh, expansion. It, it's not fulfillment. It, it's your comfort zone is is kind of uh kind of a cemetery for the self yeah. and yeah, if you no. want to grow if you want to grow mm-hmm. you you got to keep pushing beyond your comfort zone and uh resolving yeah. your fears and seeing that they're insubstantial and and moving forward so yeah, anyway I
0: couldn't, I couldn't agree more robert and you beautifully said i want to share a couple of things um that came to mind about or on that but in terms of the this comfort zone thing you know there's there's this pedagogical approach that you may have heard that i find completely applicable for these nocturnal practices these kind of three concentric circles where you know the center of the circle uh, the central circle is your comfort zone you kind of bubble bath mentality you know basically where most of us in the western world want to hang out but it's just like you said if you hang there you're just going to drown in comfort and so in order to really grow one has to stretch into the next concentric circle, which is the, the danger zone, or not the danger zone, I should say, the learning zone, the stretch zone. And this is where growth really takes place. Um, and this is what these nocturnal practices invite, you know, the the opportunity to stretch outside of the proverbial comfort zone. And then, of course, the final concentric circle would in fact be the risk or danger zone where you know you stretch too far and the stretch can turn into a snap. But what I have discovered is that. If we um, spend most of our lives in the comfort zone, our comfort zone gets smaller and smaller. We get fussier, more picky, more kind of irritable. And if we spend more and more time in our learning or stretch zone, our comfort zone gets bigger because we're able to tolerate more. We're able to accommodate and learn more. And so it's really um, delightful for me to hear what you share there. But the one thing I really want to talk to you a little bit about, because this is one of the things that struck me the most about your book, was in fact when you were talking about this experience of the blue light, Um, because to me, it was a complete kind of uh, articulation of luminosity yoga. At this point, you've probably been able to retrofit that because I know you read Tenzin Wanyo's book, Um, but this is completely confluent with what Tibetan Buddhists and Buddhism refers to as sleep yoga or, or luminosity yoga. And it's really, for me, when I read it, it was like, hey, spot on, because according to the inner yogas of the Tibetan approach, when the mind resides in, in formless awareness, it resides, you know, provisionally in the heart center, um, and that has a kind of frequency, or color, or tone, whatever you want to ascribe to it. And in the Buddhist tantra point of view, that 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 color is blue. And so, for you to actually have an experience of radiant blue light is utterly in resonance with Tibetan um, sleep yoga. And and also what you said um, when your wife was talking about seeing your repose as kind of angelic. Um, repose is, is is also I've heard some other people write to, uh, write on this. It's like you know you're you're resting in the lap of God, and so when you when you're using that particular nomenclature, and so when you're so open and utterly relaxed, the mind is resting um, in its natural state, and that has an outer analog, and that's why when we see people in deep dreamless sleep, sometimes it's the most beautiful. Um, kind of representation of who they are. but when you're actually resting full you know full on in that space, then to have that kind of outer marker, I find really compelling. So whatever you can say to us around this would be fabulous because a lot of people have some disbelief, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners aren't in this camp about the validity of maintaining awareness in the dream state, of course, lucid dreaming. Um, but lucid sleep is even more. Um, incredulous and, and just parenthetically Robert you may or may not know but Giulio Tononi you know the eminent neuroscientist of University of Wisconsin-Madison and his colleagues they're actually doing um, really sophisticated studies with people now and trying to substantiate things like the validity of deep dreamless awareness you know doing studies um, showing that it is in fact possible to uh, measure someone resting in a deep formless state but whatever else you can share with us about that experience um, um, I think our listeners would be really uh, inspired because, you know, we don't have a lot of role models in the West, um, let alone, you know, the world of lucid dreaming, uh, lucid sleep is, is is a stretch even further. So this is why when I have someone like you with your incredible track record, hearing your personal stories, hearing your own, uh, sharing your own experiences, I personally find it inspiring, and I think our listeners do the same. So can you share with us a little bit more about this experience of the blue light and what was the affective kind of component for you? I mean, how did it feel for you? How has it affected you? How has it changed your life um, in post-sleep? Right, uh, well,
1: so, so, so I'll, I'll try to a little bit. Uh, I, I remember reading a quote by Steve Jobs. Uh, he, he he basically said that that looking back on his life, he could connect the dots he could see that a bizarre set of circumstances at various points along the way kind of was the foundation and the creation of, of something uh, incredible that, that he was able to achieve in his life. But, but only by looking backward after a long time could he kind of connect the dots. And, and I'm going to tell you, one of the dots for me early on so, so you have to realize that I grew up in a traditional Protestant family, we went to church most every week. Um, I, I'd probably read the read the Bible once and the New Testament probably three times or so. And so I was, I was pretty deep into it, you know, as a, as a young teenager. But I remember at the time, I began to have dream experiences where I was inhabiting someone else's body and looking through their eyes and so, so, so here's an example the first time I ever drank wine was in a dream so <laughs> so in this dream so I'm probably 11 or 12 maybe 13 years old at the time in that night I'm having a dream and I'm looking through the eyes of this man and he's shorter than I am and he has these big hands and he's wearing this heavy wool coat and he's sitting in his basically his living room, and I'm quite sure it's in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And I know that the harbor and the boats are behind him. And in his right hand, he has um, a glass of wine. A- and I can see everything. I can see the gas lights on the wall. And he brings the glass of wine up to his mouth. And this wine was so good it exploded in his mouth. Oh wow! And when I woke up as a little 12 or 13-year-old, I thought, holy crap, is that what wine tastes like? That was incredible, you know, because, you know, you go to church and you, you get grape juice or whatever on, on communion. And But what I realized was, and, and here's the important thing, I started having a number of these experiences that began to make me question some of the fundamental concepts in, in the Protestant worldview. Yeah. And and when you begin to have these experiences in the dream state, it 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 really begins to um, uh, create cracks in, in the foundation of, of the old belief system, mm-hmm. and 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 you kind of uh, start start looking around, uh, you know, for 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 a, for a new belief system and and all. But but, but I always felt like my dreams. Uh, helped me when I needed to make a breakthrough, and and sometimes when I started seeing some of these uh, past life dreams, it, it was truly profound. And uh, even one of them, I actually found the exact place it occurred um, mm-hmm. in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Uh, and that one, I was looking through the eyes of a woman who was carrying this heavy cloth, and she's climbing up the little steps of her cabin, and she looks out a little glass window and there's the tall ships moored in the harbor, and the Robert Wagoner is thinking, well, boy, we're looking to the south there, because I I could just tell by the way the light was that we were looking to the south, Uh, and then I could just feel her intelligence, but also kind of her sarcasm, because she was caught up in this bizarre Puritan uh, system. Yeah, when I woke up from that, I, I had to go grab a map of Massachusetts. Uh, growing up in Kansas, we're, we're not familiar with the coastline that much. And, and I was stunned when I saw that Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts looks to the south. And a few years ago, I went and I found the exact spot where this cabin was, which was about 50 yards west of the first little fort that, that they uh, created when they first landed in that harbor. But, but um, anyway, so So all, all of these things uh, began to break, break apart my uh, worldview. Um, I, I began to read uh, uh, the writings of Jane Roberts, uh, the Seth material that, that, that was really helpful. But, mm-hmm. but, but as I got closer to these experiences of blue light I mentioned this in my first book. Um, I began to have a recurring Asian figure. Show up in my dreams and my lucid dreams, encouraging me to go further. Yeah. And, and uh, Andrew, if you can imagine this, sometime in in the dream or the lucid dream, he he would say, Oh, you did so well in last night's dream. Just keep going, keep going. and i I, I begin to wonder who who's this guy with the crazy hair that 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 keeps uh, appearing and and in my book, I, I wrote about that. I thought he was he might be an archetype of Asian wisdom, or you know, a symbol of 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 Eastern knowledge, or something like that. But anyway, what happened was, once my first book was published, um, I began to have gifting dreams every night. People would bring me gifts, and and this this series of dreams culminated in a Chinese Buddhist uh, reaching into a silk robe and putting an ancient turquoise necklace around my neck as the room exploded into purple light. And I woke up from that experience thinking, what is going on here? Why would I dream of a Chinese Buddhist? And I had begun to have these other strange dreams of being in a Buddhist temple, looking at the ceiling and some other things. So I wrote a friend of mine who's a Vedic astrologer out on the west coast, Stephen Kwong. And I said, Stephen, I had this uh, powerful dream and I I think it has something to do with my life. Uh, This Chinese Buddhist guy uh, put an ancient turquoise necklace around my neck and the room exploded into purple light. And he he wrote back and and said, well, uh, I'm out in France at a yoga uh, conference, but uh, I'm hosting a Chinese Buddhist in, in, in the fall. Here's the link. And I click on the link and it was the gentleman. Who had put this ancient turquoise necklace around my neck, and that? then I realized as I started to see photos of him earlier in his life, this was the guy who was occasionally showing up in my dreams and lucid dreams, um, encouraging me to go further. And that it was quite a stunner because this gentleman—he's um, the—he's passed away now, but he was the lineage head. Of Chinese esoteric Buddhism that that had gone underground basically for about a thousand years or so.
0: You're referring to Shingon? Is it Shingon Buddhism? Are you referring to that? Or do you know the lineage
1: actually? So so, um, so, so Chinese esoteric Buddhism kind of went uh, underground, I believe, uh, after kind of uh, the, the Tang Dynasty. But it's uh-huh. connected to Shingon, uh, which didn't Kukai go over to Japan? And, yep. and um, bring back kind of the, the esoteric uh, Buddhist methods.
0: But well, basically, um, basically Chinese won't be as rejection, Robert. But, but it's basically Chinese um, Vajrayana or tantric Buddhism, and that's what I thought. So it, it's completely right. with my understanding. But anyway, this is awesomely cool. Please continue. <laughs> so,
1: so, um, so that was kind of, in some regards, almost kind of a uh, personal meltdown at the moment. When I realized this guy, and there's places in my first book I mentioned him. This recurring guy uh, kept kept showing up. The the thing that helped me at the end, though, when he gave me the ancient turquoise necklace, was he had finally shaved his head, so I could see that he was Chinese. If you look at photos of him earlier in his life, he had this totally weird hair, and and I, I you know, I'd wake up thinking, boy, was that guy Filipino? Is he Japanese? what? What was that guy? But anyway. Um, Carry on with this story a little bit. Um, so so um, after that, uh, I decided, okay, I'll go to my first ever uh, Buddhist workshop. Uh, boy, what? How old was I then? I don't know. Probably, probably in my early 50s. And so it was. Uh, it was a Buddhist workshop uh, on the Achusma mantra. And and so my friend told me, he goes, look there's going to be all these people this everyone really respects this master i can get you 10 minutes with him privately through his translator so you got to really th- you know be careful because you only have 10 minutes and, and all so so anyway uh, uh I, I, during the 10 minutes um he and i began to talk and it went on for more than a, i think more than an hour and mm-hmm. and um, and, um Finally, you know, he, he, people were coming to be blessed and all sorts of things. And finally, at the end of it, uh, he, he, I, I told him I had to go because it was obvious I was eating into everybody else's time. But he, but he told me that uh, before you go, I want to tell you about an ancient master of dreams. This was his personality. Hmm. And he began to describe the personality that basically I connect with myself. And I, I just felt stunned. That, it, that here, here, this guy um, uh, had that had that uh, so, so, so well completed, but in any case, um, um, the, there were other aspects of this that 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 made me realize the connection. Um, uh, it, it, it's so. Someday I'll probably write another book and, and kind of uh, discuss all of this, but 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 in any case. Uh, It it surprised me for a person who never got interested in Buddhism because of all the translation issues, uh, and just totally set it aside. um, That 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 you know here at whatever that was, uh, 2008, um, that that I would have this sudden realization. I, I mean, it was almost a meltdown when I realized that this guy had actually existed, existed at that time, and had actually been visiting me intermittently for about the last 15 years in Dreams and Lucid Dreams, and I, I just thought he was just a recurring uh, dream figure. It, yeah. it was really quite stunning to, to realize that connection and, uh, and all yeah. So,
0: I mean, that's just remarkable, and it, it, a number of things come to mind, Robert. I mean, one is just the the utter beauty and mystery of the world you know this just these types of experiences are what shatter paradigms just like you were talking about earlier paradigms are are broken when we collect data that no longer fits the established view and just because that data is is um accumulated in a so-called altered state of consciousness doesn't negate the validity of the data and so i i'm completely in harmony with what you're saying I've, i've had many similar uh, kind of tectonic shifts in my worldview based on dreams exactly of this sort where you you come up from them and because you're working with levels of reality that are so foundational they they can kind of shape shift like a you know kind of um cognitive earthquake everything that happens on the surface you know and it also harks to me about how somewhat akin to you know um freud's iceberg view of of uh of mind that what we know as our, our limited self, uh, our ego psyche, is just this kind of pinched awareness on the surface of this vast ocean of consciousness. And that when that, like a like a, a you know, piece of salt, when that dissolves into the ocean of awareness, as as we fall asleep, we we make ourselves quote unquote available to this to this utter magic mystery and beauty of the world, where we can in fact be in communication with uh, so-called external entities, and receive spiritual guidance and, and dreams of premonition, prophetic dreams, and the like. And so, you know, to hear uh, uh, someone like you, with your authority, speak about this is it's personally inspiring to me. And I have to, I have to also retrofit what you you talked about another stage, this idea of um, inhabiting others in the dream, um, and actually working to see through the eyes of another. Uh, You may or may not know, but this is one of the stages of dream yoga. Um, In my articulation, it's stage six, a slightly more evolved stage where one actually uh, volitionally tries to accomplish this in the dream as a way, of course, to work with empathy, you know, where you're not just stepping into another person's shoes, you're stepping into another person's soma, and uh, you're seeing the world through their eyes. And so for you to share, again, the other thing that's just so rock and cool, Robert, you know, you share some of the stuff, you're not a Buddhist. Um, and of course, we well, always have to remember, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, and so in that regard, I'm not even a Buddhist, but the idea that you share some of these extraordinary experiences from uh, from a different um, kind of upbringing and, and tradition, so to speak, is just so awesomely cool to me. Um, but I do want to ask you one, one question briefly. When you were having this experience of, of the blue light, Mm-hmm. Where were you in that? I mean, was there any flicker of self-reference? Where, where, where? I know is it difficult when you're starting to talk about these somewhat non dualistic experiences, but where were you in all this?
1: So, 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 so that that was actually quite the odd thing. Um, again, uh, imagine falling asleep, and suddenly it's just uh, light. It, it's It's blue light the entire night, and there's no me, no action, no plot, no symbols, no movement. it's It's just this field of blue light for the entirety. but but to carry on what happened, so so this experience kept happening again and again and and my wife asked me what I was doing. And, and again, I was trying to go beyond lucid dreaming because I'd come to the conclusion that mm-hmm. somewhere beneath all of this, there must be a real reality, and, yeah, and even, in the, even in the final chapter of my book, Lucid Dreaming Plain and Simple, in the final chapter, that's, that's a book for beginners, but in the final chapter, I give a technique that anybody can use. You don't even have to be a lucid dreamer. Anybody can use to see that the world that we exist in right now is fundamentally a dream, and when I say that, I mean fundamentally it is a mental creation. It's no, no, no. a co-creation, co-creation of the mind. So, okay. so, anyway, if 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 people want to try it out, just get the final chapter of my book, take that technique, and and practice it for a week or so, and I think you'll see that you exist in a mental creation. So, 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 uh, so, I had taken this all very, very deeply. Began to have the blue light experiences, and then what happened was quite strange. One night. Um, I found myself in a bubble, and uh, there were these two beings on the outside of the bubble uh, who were helping me through this very strange purplish light, uh, kind of purplish blue light, and and so we're going, going, going through this, and and I I think they're kind of helping me stay focused because it's such an extremely odd uh, um, place. Anyway... We finally get to something of a temple, and so now imagine a a big white temple. I go walking into the temple, walk around the corner, and there is a being composed of blue light. Mm. It's it's about 15 feet tall. It has a trident in the hook of its left arm, and it has this kind of white sash uh, around it a little bit, uh, just kind of more of a sash and and all. And at first, I started to laugh. I thought, I thought, what the hell is this? Is this a blue light god or a blue light monster? What, what is this? Yeah. Then, then I began to think, well, how do you respond to this? And um, and so at the time, you know, I, I thought, well, Castaneda always tried to get beyond each gate that, that he was presented with, and so I thought well, maybe I should just try to get past this and, and see what's past this. And if you can imagine, I'm running in this temple, running up to the blue light god who's about 15 feet tall, just towers over me. I get right up to it like I'm going to get beyond it. And suddenly there's this sound explosion that that when I woke up, I knew every cell in my body had somehow been transformed or changed. Wow. And, I, and I woke up and I thought, what what is going on here? What What is that? That is so weird. So then, what happened after that, I don't know if it was a week or two after that, I was still trying to go beyond lucidine. I'm mean, i falling asleep one night, and my larger awareness tells me that if I really want to go the entire distance, I might cease to be.
0: That's
1: right. And I, I, I told my larger awareness, I go, look, I have come this far. <laughs> oh, I want to understand the real reality, if there is one, is there a real reality here? And I said, I know my larger awareness exists and that this ego is just an outgrowth of it or, or just like one-tenth of, of what it is. And, and so Robert Wagner is no big deal in this whole big scheme of things. I really want to understand. I agree to cease to be.
0: It, yeah.
1: and, and and that night, if you can imagine awareness within awareness and and uh, and suddenly, this state ceases, and I'm standing there, and there's a guy in a robe, and I look at him and I say, what was that? Was that a lucid dream? And he said, oh, no, to enter a lucid dream, go here. And he points into space, and I step into that space, and now I'm hurtling through uh, a tunnel of light and eventually pop into a lucid dream, uh, loosely aware. But but in the morning when I woke up I thought what the hell was that first part though you know that this this uh, aware light within aware light it, it, it was it was truly profound and and it was about two or three years later um, I was at an International Association for the Study of Dreams conference in Hawaii Wang Wangyal Rinpoche had just uh, released his first book uh, the Tibetan Yogas of Dream and Sleep and and he talked about you know the buddhist goal of dream yoga and and uh, sleep yoga was was the clear light of awareness the experience of that by awareness itself and yeah. i thought oh my god there's a name for this there, there's a there's a name for that and uh, anyway so 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 that's what i kind of explain in the book is how I in in a funny way kind of bushwhacked my way, um, and at the time I didn't realize that I was getting help for, for, from from the lineage holder of Chinese esoteric Buddhism, but but after my book was published, I realized I had uh, it 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 was it was another one of those kind of meltdown moments when I realized wow there's 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 something to this and this experience I had just wasn't subjective or had no connection to anything anywhere. Yeah, so,
0: just really beautiful. I, again, a, a couple of comments and just uh, elaborations, you know, I, I'm particularly struck by the, this experience. And and you may or may not know, Robert, that in Tibetan um, icon- iconographical representations of the primordial awakened mind, the deities are blue. Like in Kagyu Buddhism, Vajradhara uh, represents this awareness. He's blue. In the Nyingma tradition, Samantabhadra represents that awareness, he's blue. When you rest in the heart chakra of formless, i.e. deathless awareness, again, it's blue. And so it's just so awesome that that you can kind of speak of experiences that are confluent with a particular map that that these folks have come up with. And the other thing in terms of maps that you said that is so beautiful, and I think super important for people wanting to go beyond lucid dreaming, is um, in agreeing, you know, signing this contract, like you said, that, you know, if I need to die, so be it. The reason I think you did that, and and this is one of the reasons that the maps of the mind that that I try to portray uh, representing the traditions as I've come to understand it, is that if you have a really compelling, complete map of the mind, which goes beyond lucid dreaming, goes beyond psychological depictions, at least as I understand them, and, and allows you to take refuge in this ultimate Um, awareness or divinity that subsends all relative manifestations of mind if you if you have confidence in that map which you did then it allows you to die it allows you to say you know I am going to release this salt this pinched awareness that is the limited thing called Robert um, knowing that fundamentally Robert is an illusion Robert is just an appropriated storyline a narrative Um, and that can be done with um, the flashlight of a powerful map, where where you realize, hey, you know what? I'm willing to take this death dive um, because I know fundamentally what's dying is just illusory to begin with. And so for you to for you to do that is just so inspiring for me, and I'm sure I'm sure for others who've had similar types of experiences. Um, and then secondly, if you don't mind me commenting, I was also really intrigued by you know the guy that you said you know is this a lucid dream? Um, and you no, know, if you know if you want to have a lucid dream, go there. Well, one of the ways you you may or may not know, Robert, in the Tibetan inner yogic systems of achieving what's called full lucidity, and and parenthetically, as you know, in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, lucid dreaming is considered partial lucidity. You're halfway there. Um, Full lucidity is lucidity in the deep dreamless state. And so what you say, again, is just so resonant with my experience and also doctrinal understanding that when you're resting in the formless state, again, provisionally, or the heart center, and that one of the ways that I um, have discovered, somewhat like hacking through the bush, like you said, was I would sometimes drop into the state with my understanding of the subtle body system. In other words, I would have a lucid dream, pretty strong, almost hyper lucid dream and then realize, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I want I to actualize some kind of formless state. And then what I would do is one of my induction methods for achieving lucid sleep, is I would just volitionally, you know, lucid dream saying, you know, I'm gonna plunge through the floor of this dream with the intent of reaching um, full formless lucidity in the heart, um, heart chakra. And so for you to have that experience of like coming up through a tunnel of light, which would be completely resonant with the central channel which is really cre- um, defined by light, coming up through that and then entering the lucid dream from this portal. Again, it's, it's a completely resonant description of the way the inner yogas talk about this transition from full lucidity to partial lucidity, and also the experiences I've had in my own lucid dreams. And so, um, you know, you continue to uh, amaze me with the depth of your experience and how it just uh, completely, you know, kind of resonates with what I've experienced and understood. So.
1: One, one thing that I, I, I want to mention is, is is in the second book, uh, Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple, uh, my, my co-author, uh, Carolyn McCready, and I uh, uh, wrote a chapter on meditating in lucid dreams. Uh, yeah. but, because uh, uh, for, for most of us lucid dreamers, that's not something that we would naturally think of and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but... but One of the people who uh, wrote back to us, Claire Johnson, uh, and allowed us to use some of her material. She she said, uh, here's what happened to her as she began to meditate more and more in her lucid dreams. She, She said that after about five or six times of doing that in a lucid dream, now in her waking state, what used to take her 20 minutes to get to a certain deep level, now she was getting there in four or five minutes. So she said the the activity of doing it in the lucid dream states somehow seemed to clear out the barriers or make the way easier or whatever, that now in the waking state, it, it was so much easier. But, yes. but also, okay. also and I know you probably want to talk about that, but, but, but also when you begin to interact with the awareness behind the dream or the larger awareness or the, whatever you want to call it, um, as I began to do that more and more... Um, um, I realized my intuitional knowledge during the day w- w- was was even more um, uh, profound and 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 sometimes more just spot on, j- just just incredible. But but it, it, here's kind of an example of that. Um, so I'm going to blend these two together. Um, uh, my wife and I were going to go to France, and and I guess that this is uh, about 18 years ago. And, and so I'm sitting down it's June and I'm sitting down um, booking our tickets online and and, um, and this is in the months before 911 occurred
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so I'm sitting down and I'm saying okay so we'll leave uh, September 1st and we'll come back and I typed in September 13th and all of a sudden sitting there in my chair doing this my body just began to shake wow. and and I said whoa whoa okay okay how about we'll come back September 14th? And, and then again, my body just began shaking, like someone was physically like, like shaking me. And then I put, okay, we'll come back uh, September 15th. And I clicked that, and my body didn't shake. And I thought, okay, no shake. We'll come back the 15th. Wow. My wife and I were on the first flight back uh, from Paris Charles de Gaulle to Chicago. Um, if I'd chosen those earlier dates, um, yeah. then we would have been one of the four or 5,000 standby passengers and 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 just had a, a totally messed up experience. Yeah, so, so, up. So that, that, that's what one example of, of how when you begin to do this stuff in the lucid dream, you, you think, oh, it's, well, it just doesn't matter because it just happens in the lucid dream. No, it it helps with uh, your waking uh, consciousness as well and kind of clearing out that space.
0: I couldn't agree more, my friend. And it's actually, it's a thing that I stress a great deal with my own work is this, you know, bidirectional tenant, which is integral to it, because in fact, it's the whole point. It's one of the things that really differentiates advanced lucid dreaming, i.e. dream yoga, let alone sleep yoga, um, from kind of over-the-counter dream yoga, is that what you can do during the night, in fact, as you know, um, Nankai Norba Rinpoche says that, you know, the practices that we accomplish in the night, first of all, uh, they can be more efficacious than what we do during the day. So in terms of what Claire um, was referring to, this is also my experience, that you can absolutely positively um, insert these kind of nighttime pop-ups, these these. Uh, areas of expertise and proficiency that we can practice in the dream state and because you're working with a more foundational um, dimension of being the unconscious mind or you know, these kind of uh, deeper strata they can have a more rapid um, effect transformative effect on so-called waking consciousness and so for Claire to have that and to share that experience with you it's just fantastic because again it's another way for people to be encouraged about like well why should I bother with lucid dreaming why should I bother with dream yoga Well, you know, I playfully say, well, it's like going to night school. It's it's a way to really extend your life, to facilitate your psychospiritual development, to take what you gleaned under the cover of darkness, so to speak, to pull that cover back and to have those insights kind of extend into into daytime life. And so then what happens is for me, Robert, and I'm sure it's been the same with you, is we replace this usual non-lucid vicious circle where, you know, our unconscious non-lucid habits during the day predispose us to, Non-lucidity at night, and then that you know unwittingly feeds back in, bootstraps, and predisposes us to non-lucidity during the day in this non-lucid vicious circle. With these practices and with this with this understanding, we can replace that with a virtuous circle where the lucidity that we engage in during the night um, you know, bidirectionally comes back in, informs, transforms the day, then in a positive feedback loop that speeds back into the night. And therefore, you know, you're on the fast track to psychospiritual development um, because you're using what? I mean, by waking up to the lucid dreaming state, you know, 25 percent of our life can be enhanced and used for the purposes of of, of awakening. And so this is exactly the type of thing that you and I, I think, are both so passionate about is um, trying to share with others the extraordinary Bed of natural resources that we have every single night when we go to sleep. And that What we do there doesn't have to be left there. What you do in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. You can you can bring it up and use it to transform your waking life. And so, I I for one, um, you know, am very inspired to hear the stories that you're sharing and, and what you're but, so, so
1: so I I remember one time I was on a, um, oh, a webinar with. Um, Michael Katz, who, who uh, is out out in New York City and um, is part of the Zojin tradition and uh, teaches uh, dream yoga and all, and and and, and so I, I was talking about the first time I had meditated in a lucid dream. Um, somebody somebody had asked me if I'd ever meditated. This was probably 25 years ago in, in the 90s, sometime. And, and I realized I'd never tried meditating in a lucid dream, and and and. Um, So so I I just want to explain what happened to me as a person who wasn't brought up in a Buddhist tradition, really hadn't read much into Eastern uh, whatever. So so I'm walking down this trail, this dusty trail, and I realized, wait a second, this must be a dream. And so then I remembered uh, that a woman, Linda Magion, had asked me to meditate in a lucid dream. So, So I sat down on the trail. I began to... Uh, I put my legs in kind of a half lotus, and and I just sat there and began to empty my mind. and so so, for me, meditating is is more a mind emptying. Mm-hmm. And as I began to do that, w- within twenty or thirty seconds, it was like it was like the screen of the imagery, the dream screen or the dream imagery, began to get ripped away. Like it was a movie screen, and brilliant light came shooting through. And and, and after about half the dream screen got ripped away, I, I there was so much light, uh, I kind of shook myself out of the meditation, and, and thought maybe I was doing something wrong because the the dream imagery was was basically being destroyed. So so then I closed my eyes and began to empty my mind, and you know within thirty seconds or whatever. It, just a utterly profound state of, of kind of transcendence uh, occurred and, uh, and and so I mentioned that and then Michael Katz uh, he, he shocked me he said he said Robert you, you don't know this but in in my tradition uh, this this is probably suggestive of uh, of letting go of the mind in such a way that you begin to experience the, the Rigpa is I believe is what he said uh, the kind of the the base awareness that exists behind appearances. But, yeah. but it 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 is kind of a strange thing to um, uh, see these comp- experiences firsthand and then later learn uh, that there's kind of this system that explains it. it's It's kind of, Interesting to have the experience of it first before.
0: Wildly, yeah, and again, so much to say here, my friend. One, one thing, a couple things, but one thing is, you know, the the most transformative experience I had in in my life was something I share in the introduction to my first book on on dream yoga was this so-called altered state um, in my very early 20s that I slipped into for a couple weeks, where one of the characteristics was pretty much constant lucid dreams every day, every night, I should say. And then correlative to that was seeing my daytime reality as increasingly dreamlike. And as I share, you know, it was really kind of cool for a while, but became somewhat disconcerting when I got to the point where I could no longer tell when I was awake or I was asleep. And so, you know, my, my, Waking life became more de-reified, my dream life became more reified, so to speak, until I saw the kind of the, the equanimity, the one case of it all. And basically I didn't have the psychic infrastructure. And so I freaked out, shut it down. And then just like you're saying here, then began this search, like, well, what the heck was that? And then finally, by a process of somewhat systematic elimination, I started studying the world's wisdom contemplative traditions. And about six or seven years later, started reading about Buddhism and, immediately attracted to the idea of you know buddha is the awakened one well what the heck does that mean and then eventually long story short found the teachings on um dream yoga and realized well here's a, a template that allows me to uh retrofit i mean an explanatory power of the doctrine to retrofit my experience and that's why i became a you know, somewhat card-carrying buddhist because like geez maybe i must be a buddhist because this is exactly what happened to me um, and so, again, it's just so cool because it, it obviously means that these foundational experiences are irrespective of, of belief systems and doctrinal limitations. These are just descriptions of reality, and certain traditions can articulate those, and then, you know, they can be of some benefit. So for you to share that is just so in line with my own experience. But but what I, what I do want to say, again, that is just so compelling about your sharing, and by the way, thank you for sharing these things. It's just Um, really inspirational is that exactly like what michael was saying when you're if if i might lend my brief understanding um, of what you experience is that you know foundationally the world is made as you know uh, and again it's all everything's in quotations here but the world is fundamentally made of light the light of the mind and that and that light and this is where in, in my tradition the bardo teachings bardo yoga which to me is that kind of culmination of all the nocturnal practices this is what bardo yoga describes in an exquisitely beautiful detail how the nature of the mind is fundamentally this luminous emptiness and then it's refracted through the prism of ignorance into forms and so when you're when you're deconstructing de-reifying these images in your dream state and they are melting back into light oh my friend i mean that is exactly what happens when you return forms back into luminous emptiness and so to have that Kind of blazing light up here, and also that the the response that you had to it is, is revelatory as well because precisely according to barda yoga this experience is what happens allegedly after we die where all form not just mental form is de-reified um deconstructed back into this primordial light, and in exactly the way you are referring to it our inability to be with that light um, stuns us it, it there's a type of you know the light is too bright um, all heaven breaks loose in a certain sense, and and then you know the egoic mind then contracts out of fear because of the blindness of that light. And so, for you to reiterate this experience in your um, rendering of, of these dreams is like beyond interesting to me. So um, wow, I know all I think it's good for you. Well, I, I I do want
1: to talk about a, a couple of other points uh, when it come comes to all of this. Um, um, So so looking back now and and kind of connecting the dots now and and even when I was writing my first book, when I was writing my first book, there was a number of places where I could have, you know, I think, oh, I have 10 lucid dreams that would fit what I'm trying to say right here. But then my larger awareness would nudge me to use the one, uh, would use specific ones. And, And later on, I didn't realize what it was until. Um, I had the experience of of, uh, of understanding that this uh, Chinese Buddhist w- w- was, was actually a person who existed in, in this life, and, and that's why um, at certain points in the book, I was encouraged to put in certain um, lucid dreams and, and not others because, because they fit um, uh, that narrative better. But, but, but one, one thing that surprised me when my book first came out. Uh, probably three months after my first book came out, um, uh, I, I got an email from um, a Buddhist abbot in, in a large city in Europe,
0: uh-huh. and
1: and he wrote me and he said, he said that he's a Buddhist abbot. He spent three years in a dream yoga monastery uh, in, in Asia, and he wanted to write me and say, just tell me that my book. Did a wonderful job of explaining all the things that the dream yoga monks had tried to explain to him over the course of three years.
0: Right. Beautiful.
1: But I did it in a Western way that he could immediately grasp it and right. and, and and come to an understanding of it. And and he wrote when he 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 just said I he said that. You must have a deep connection with this tradition because I just don't think the average person could have could have come up with these insights and and all, uh, especially someone who who hadn't spent three years in a dream yoga monastery. Yeah. And so 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 it, it is kind of interesting. Um, I I do feel that that part of my purpose here was to give a different spin because so often the Buddhist lineages teach. That you teach the same lessons that you were taught in the same manner that you were taught. You you, you basically extend, um, you know, um, y- your teacher's lessons to the next generation at all. And, and so so mine in a way was was a little bit of a different um, sort of approach because um, um, I, I I don't think in traditional uh, Buddhist dream yoga um, um, you would I don't know, maybe maybe you do, but uh, I, I don't think most people would get to the point where they realize that that the ego self was an outgrowth of a larger awareness of so much vaster creativity, knowledge and depth that that it makes the the ego self look look almost uh, puny by comparison. I, I, I don't I don't think they kind of take that approach. So this is a little bit of a different kind of bushwhacking way. But, but another thing that I wanted to say, too, is that one thing that I've always encouraged people to do is not seek out spiritual figures in lucid dreams, because normally they get too excited and, and they wake up. Right. And in, instead, what I encourage people to do is ask to experience spiritual concepts, uh-huh. So, so, so instead of trying to find Jesus and, and whatever, have a big reunion, just shout out, hey, dream, let me experience unconditional love Beautiful. or hey, dream, let me feel true atonement or hey, dream. But and wh- whatever the concept is, because when you open up to these concepts, they can be so utterly utterly mind expanding and kind of uh, just so incredible. So I remember I was in London, I gave a talk. I suggested people, you know, ask to experience concepts, you know, don't don't go chase Buddha and Jesus and all that. And, and uh, six months later I was back in London and a lady walked in the room and told the crowd that she had heard me tell people to ask to experience spiritual concepts. She asked to experience unconditional love. She said that when she woke up from that lucid dream and having that experience, she said the experience of unconditional love was so deeply felt and so profound. She said she never realized how deep love could be. She said she felt love at such an extraordinarily powerful level that, that when she woke up, she cried tears of joy for 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, that's how shaken she was by it. She said that that when, it, when she's talking about it it's almost like light is beaming out of her face that that's how beautiful all this was but that that would be one thing that I'd I'd encourage people to do ask yeah. to experience spiritual concepts it's if, if you want to have your mind expanded and your mind open uh, that that to me seems like a lovely approach to take but again if you're reactive or fear-based mind uh, gets immediately triggered by the uncomfortable sensations or the unexpected energy, then you'll shut it down. So right. so, so it, it helps to be open to the experience, to kind of surrender and to, to kind of
0: let go. Yeah, those are really fantastic suggestions, Robert. And again, you know, I, I immediately flick on the idea that um, open-ended questions, uh, it, it's like, don't, don't reify the question, you know, de-reify even the question. And then you don't have to have these, these uh, concepts, as you put them, but I would just say, you know, archetypal um, aspects of reality, they do not need to be anthropomorphized. I mean, they can some, some, sometimes come across as that image, as in fact, Christ um, represents right. that, who raised you represent? But the open-ended question, you know, to me, my favorite definition these days, Robert, of meditation altogether is habituation to openness. I find it so applicable in so many dimensions. And even here, if you ask these open-ended dimension questions, you get open-ended answers. And and for this woman to respond um, in this kind of open way to the discovery of this foundational level of love is, you know, one, one of the ways to really understand the affective discovery, because often we think of enlightenment as a little bit more, at least in my um, circle, kind of more cognitive, more cerebral, But the affective experience of the enlightened state is, in fact, one of love. And so um, love is the nature of reality. Um, The world is made of love. Um, And so when you tap into that, like this woman did, that's why it's so foundational, because you've fallen into the bed of reality. And so, again, it's another one of these stories that's so inspiring to me. And and one last thing here, um, again, in terms of retrofitting comment to what you said. I could not agree more about um, this kind of what I call, or at least what I'm working with, this more integral approach to the nocturnal practices and integral approach to lucid dreaming. Because, you know, I, I did my principal training in the Tibetan um, Buddhist tradition in my three-year retreat where we were exposed in a really rigorous fashion, perhaps somebody can say the monk uh the abbot that you're referring to, to the classic kind of um, Buddhist approach to lucidity. And I have found Western methods to be more effective. And, and so I'm completely aligned with what you're doing. My charter now is to use the kind of integral broad spectrum approach, which is where, I mean, I'll take truth wherever I can get it. And um, nobody has a patent on truth. And if if the Western skillful means, the work of Stephen LaBear, yourself and others, um, is as effective, or I think for Westerners even more so, then goodness, why not use that? Um, take this this larger lens and bring all these modalities to bear to, to bring about states of lucidity. Um, right. So. right. If, if you don't mind me sharing a, a
1: couple of interesting stories. Uh, so so uh, for, for the last 18 years, uh, I've been the co-editor of this online magazine, the Lucid Dreaming Experience, uh, that that we publish for free quarterly. Uh, my, my friend Lucy up in Vancouver, right British Columbia, and and. Uh, um, about a year ago, uh, we got a really a fascinating uh, story. Our, our, maybe it was an interview of a, a gentleman. So, so this gentleman in, in Waking Life, he's a mechanical engineer in Seattle. And I think I met him three or four years ago. I was giving a talk there. And he came in to the room and he said, I, I want to tell you your book saved my life. And, well, and so I, I just thought he's over, overdoing it. And then, then his wife came up and said, no, your book really did save his life because the, this gentleman had grown up in a totally dysfunctional family. And and at night he was just tormented by all sorts of negative energies. I'll, I'll just call him that. But 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 he, he read my book and he realized, you know, that you you can interact uh, with these projections, these dream figures, you know, with love and compassion and acceptance and and begin to resolve them inwardly and, and make a profound change. So so anyway, after he had his breakthroughs and finally resolved all these energies, he, he really became a much more spiritual person. And again, he's a mechanical engineer. So 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 I, by nature, and I don't want to insult mechanical engineers, but but by nature, I don't find right. a lot of mechanical engineers on the spiritual path. Right. Right. But, but anyway, um, he he about. About uh, six months ago or whatever, he, he had a lucid dream where he's looking at a man who, who's kind of uh, glowing with, with kind of vigor and, and, and all, and, and the man looks at him in the lucid dream and says, tell me my name, and the lucid dreamer, uh, Mike, he, 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 said, he says he knows the guy, but he just can't think of the name, and the gentleman says again, tell me my name. And finally, it comes to him and he says, Ganak, and and then the other gentleman smiles. And then they sit there and have a conversation about Mike's continued spiritual growth and spiritual development and all. And and then Ganak tells Mike that now it's time for him to leave. And all of a sudden, Mike said he he started saying, Maharishi, Maharishi, please, no, stay with me. And and he was so stunned to hear himself say Maharishi. Anyway, he wakes up from this lucid dream, and he thinks, Gnanak. what the heck is Gnanak? And and he goes and he Google searches Gnanak, and, and Ganak, um is the spiritual founder of Sikhism. Exactly right. And he could not believe that here is the guy that right. he was seen in the lucid dream, and he was the spiritual founder of Sikhism, which... Of course, 99.99% of Americans have no connection, interest, or knowledge about. Yeah. Then I had another. Then I had another situation. Um, so I do these online workshops uh, that go on for 30 days with Guidewing, and so this one young guy from uh, the Middle East uh, joins up, and and it, it was pretty easy to see early on that that. There were some uh, shadow figures that, that the guy had to work through, so, so I helped him with that. And then all of a sudden, his lucid dreaming life really began to take off. And about two years later, he writes me and, and he, he wrote me and he said, Robert, have you ever heard of Dawal Yeltsin? He said, Last night in a lucid dream, I met this guy, and he made me repeat his name about five times until I said it exactly right. Yeltsin, Yatsen Duong Yatsen. and he said, "I'm from a Muslim tradition. I have no knowledge who this guy is." And then when I wake up in the morning, I Google search him, and 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 I see the Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, you know, and and that whole Bon tradition. Uh, is, is very connected to Dawagi Yeltsin and all. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so part of what I want to bring up is that is that people are, are, are going to have uh, a variety of experiences uh, uh, just fr- from wherever they are. Even myself, one night I became consciously aware, I don't know if I was in a lucid dream or in an OBE, but mm-hmm. in front of me are these two guys wearing black silk robes. And the one guy sees that I'm conscious, looking at him, wondering who the heck he is, and he nudges the other guy in the black silk robe, and, and then they're both looking at me, they're both Asian guys, and, and, and then, I, then I wake up from the experience. And, and so in the morning, I, I write some of my Chinese esoteric Buddhist friends, and I say, who wears all black silk robes and, and would be you know, in, in the lucid dream or the OBE state? And, and they wrote back, and they said, Taoist that there's secret societies within Taoism that study what you would call dream yoga or what I would call, you know, kind of advanced lucid dreaming. And and so, so that, that was another uh, just amazing thing to see these uh, Taoist uh, uh, guys out out there exploring uh, uh, as well. So, so it's, you never know uh, what you're going to find out that you're connected with and, and, uh, and, and and kind of these deeper interconnections that that in many ways are oftentimes behind the particular bent of your thinking, uh, the particular bent of your worldview. I remember one guy, I also had in the guide wing, um, this gentleman, he would shout out questions to the larger awareness, and then the larger awareness would basically answer in response with Zen koans it was so incredible Mm -hmm. when this guy would report what had happened to him in the lucid dreams and i would hear the questions in response to his request i i was they were they were epically beautiful they were they were so pristine it was incredible just incredible so Mm -hmm. so uh, everyone's going to uh you know uh have their own unique special connection um you might start out as a Buddhist and realize that you're deeper connected with Taoism than you ever expected and and so on. You you just never know where it's going to take you.
0: Yeah, you know, for me I I playfully uh, refer at at these deeper levels, you know, these wisdom entities are all cross-dressers as far as I can tell. (laughs) Um, So, you know, again you're just you're treating so many things that are just so compelling provocative to me and and one here that definitely warrants um, Refer, uh comment oh no actually parenthetically for those of you who don't know listeners obe that robert referred to is obviously out of body experience in case that you're not familiar with that term or that acronym but what what robert says here that i think is so interesting is that this is one of the narratives that we've been riffing on for the last bit here is that when you d- descend into these deeper strata of experiences i think it's like a, a Hunt and Ogilvy once said, you know, the farther down the rabbit hole you get, the more collected the experience becomes. You know, one one actually starts to not so much, again, these these are metaphors, don't take them too linearly, but not so much transcend, but one one subsends these surface structures, these kind of developmental cultural and social forms. And so I, I also love the the kind of double entendre when you talk about what well, people have their particular bent that's a wonderful play on words because what my understanding Robert is that in fact when we have these pre-personal pre-temporal pre-spatial experiences that um, they get bent they we bend them by our social cultural training and we bend them sometimes unfortunately distort them but we bend them into forms that we can then relate to and so it's perfectly indicative when we even use the phraseology Oh, you have particular bends. Well, you're taking this light of awareness, you're bending it into a form that you can relate to. On one level, you don't really have a choice. This is what I was talking about with you know, my friend Ken Wilber, is that the minute we open our mouth or move, we have no choice but to represent these um, experiences in the psychological structures and strata of social and cultural conditioning that we have. There's no option to that. Um, and so the point is to not get caught up at these surface levels, and to look deeper to these common universal truths that lie, again, double entendre, uh, in the bed of, of mind and reality from which everything arises. And really, that foundational bed, just to tie it into what you said earlier, is fundamentally utterly formless. You know, it's just basically we say light and space provisionally, but whatever you say, it isn't. It's, it's something that is utterly sentenceence to any um, conceptual category altogether. But you know the, the incredibly cool thing in our conversation is how these practices invite, um, as you mentioned earlier, this deep, utterly profound exploration of the nature of mind and reality. and, and that you know in your quest to discover that, you've used the laboratory of the mind in, in this lucid dreaming format. Um, Completely in the way that my tradition of Tibetan Buddhism does to explore it, Um, and so it's just a total gas for me to hear someone with your background riff about this sort of stuff. So, um, super cool stuff, my friend. Um, I do, I do want to ask you if you don't mind. I I almost hate to come out of incredibly deeper issues, but many people, you know, like want to get addressed to some of our listeners. Um, When they're working with things like lucid dreaming, and I'm sure you you know this extraordinarily well, one of the biggest issues is having these special dreams. So I wanna ask you a couple questions around that. Um, The first one would be in your personal and also kind of pedagogical um, experience, in other words, working with your students, what are your go-to methods? I mean, if, if, if you have to have a lucid dream tonight, What do you do? And if you're really training people um, in your go-to methods, I'm most interested to hear what those might be. Well,
1: so so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a roundabout response. Um, So so when I first started out back in 1975, uh, each night looking at my hands, telling myself tonight my dreams, I'll see my hands and realize I'm dreaming. You know, I'd average about one or two lucid dreams a month. And, and so that, that seems pretty good. And th- then uh, years later, I heard about uh, uh, Stephen LaBerge's mild uh, the mnemonic induction of lucid dream approach. And then I got, got up to about three or four or five lucid dreams a month. And, and of course, uh, back then I'm young. I'm in my late teens or early twenties. I, I guess by that time I was in my late twenties. But then what really got me to the point where I was having 30 lucid dreams a month was when I began to read uh, Jane Roberts The Seth Material no. and and here's what happened to me um, I began to develop a lucid mindset so so in the Seth Material the the, the basic premise is that you create your own reality right. And the you in that, when they say you create your own reality, I, I think they're talking about the larger you and, and not the ego you. They're talking about the larger you that, that you, the ego you, and the larger you create your own reality. So, so here's, here's what would happen. I would go throughout the day, and when I you know come around the corner and there's a woman arguing with a cab driver, I would ask myself, what beliefs, thoughts, emotions, or intents do I have that would want me to experience this today?
0: Hmm.
1: And I, I would wonder, why had I created this? Why had I become a partner in this event? What, what was I seeing here? How did it connect to me? And so then, in my dreams, when something strange would happen, I'd ask myself, what beliefs, thoughts, emotions, or intent do I have? And I, th- I think, oh, well, crap, that was too weird. Oh, this must be a dream. And so, so when I began to see, go around and see all of this uh, as some type of mental construction, then that really made my lucid dreaming um, uh, take off. Uh, and that's what I call developing a lucid mindset, where you critically examine the state of your mind or, or, or these are the experiences that you're experiencing when you critically examine them, then you begin to develop a lucid mindset. But to your question, that's not really a go to method because it probably <laughs> takes four or five years to, to, to learn that. But if, if you w- want to have a lucid dream, probably, probably the best approach to me is, is so there's the wake back to bed technique, uh, and along with proper suggestion. You wake up two or three hours before you normally would, you stay awake for 15 or 20 minutes or whatever, reading about lucid dreaming, thinking about lucid dreaming, or maybe meditating and go back to sleep, and the, the likelihood of having a lucid dream is much more enhanced. And, and so um, there's those kind of techniques. I think the power of suggestion can be truly profound, but most people don't uh use suggestion in a very uh, half-hearted way They they don't realize that their mind is helping to create experience and suggesting all the time but um, anyway but um, th- th- that that's what i'd say in
0: response to that yeah beautiful and then also um, and i couldn't agree more i mean my my go-to technique is the go the uh, the waking back to bed method and then like if i'm doing a study or i'm a lab or something and i want to quickly Um, toss this and see what you think about these so-called supplements is I have found uh, galantamine to be of of great benefit, but I know this is one of the more contentious divisive areas in the world of lucid dreaming. You know, some purists um, dismiss that approach. What is your view, um, Robert, on those sorts of things? Because as you know, it's not just galantamine. That's just like the the biggest one. Even Laberge and his colleagues, they just published a paper on this Um, within the last year, um, substantiating the validity of this. And I've I've engaged in some studies with Stephen on this. But as you know, there are so many others. There's at least a dozen supplements. So how how do those um, fit into your world, or do they? What's your view on that? Well, um,
1: so uh, I I have to say that I've probably taken glantamine four or five times. Um, So so I'm I'm not a big proponent of it. But Mm -hmm. what I am a proponent of is having quality lucid dreams. Because mm-hmm. one one high quality impactful lucid dream can be much more powerful, you know, than a than a hundred uh, medium or low level uh, lucid dreams. Mm-hmm. So uh, if if doesn't affect one's thought processes and 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 one can still achieve a, a high level of lucidity and, and achieve what they want to, uh, th- th- then that's great. I assume at some point there's going to be some um, um, perfect um, chemical pathway uh, uh, to lucid dreaming, uh, and then things will really take off, or some perfect biochemical pathway will will eventually be created. So, so, so I'm not against it in principle, but but what I want a person to focus on, of course, is uh, having a qualitative
0: uh, lucid dream experience, a um, high quality of lucid dream. Right. Nicely said and then what do you say Robert Too. this is one of the questions that that I get probably more often than any others is um, Working with discouragement Um, What do you say when someone comes up to you and says you know what I I get the benefits uh, But I'm just so discouraged. Um, How how do you help people like that?
1: You know um, in my workshops, uh, I encourage people to playfully persist and and uh, make a game out of it, have fun with it, see see it more as a game, and that's one of the unfortunate things, sometimes I meet uh, spiritual adherents who, that they almost flagellate themselves with, you know, um, uh, the the depth of their practice and the intensity of it and all, and I'm just like, loosen up, dude, it, yeah. it's, y- y- you the ego cannot force the the, uh, the unconscious uh, in in that way. You're in a relationship. You gotta you gotta you gotta play with your larger awareness and uh, and and persist, but in a but in a playful approach, will, will get you there. Uh, I think so much faster. So, yeah. so so that that's what I encourage people in terms of discouragement. I say, hey, take a break, take a break for a month or two. Give it up. Forget about it. Have fun. And and then oftentimes when they forget about and have fun, suddenly they begin to have lucid dreams because they're not constantly harping at themselves like some sort of crazed uh, uh, lunatic. So yeah. uh, so so playfully persisting really is, is the best way to go. And and if, if you run into a dry period, say, what the heck, everybody runs into a dry period. Uh, uh, I'll just uh, let it go for for a few weeks and uh, see what happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, in in the meditative traditions, they have this maxim that I found completely applicable to dream yoga, lucid dreaming is, you know, not too tight, not too loose. If you're loose, you're not practicing. You're just capitulating to your non-lucid habits. If you're too tight, you do exactly what you you just related. You know, you, you tie yourself into knots. It's no fun. And then no surprise that when you release that and kind of find your way back to the middle, then the lucid dreams tend to happen in that opening and i think as you well know that's one of the challenges with this venture altogether is kind of titrating your experience because even when you're in a lucid dream it's it's a a matter of not too tight not too loose because if you're too loose you'll capitulate and fall back into a non-lucid dream if you're too tight you're going to kick yourself back up and and out of the dream and so i have found that particular tightrope to be a very useful one in terms of the way we relate to sleep and dream
1: um, but the other also, thing. Oh, go ahead. Also, one thing that I do want to mention, I do think it helps a person to have some sense of of dream symbology uh, to 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 kind of honor and value the non lucid dreams and, and mm-hmm. begin to appreciate their own unique personal symbolism and all because as you go deeper into lucid dreaming, and maybe, for for example, you might interact with the larger awareness, sometimes you get a literal literal response, but sometimes you get a symbolic response, and then you've got to figure it out. So so part of playfully persisting is also just appreciating the majesty and creativity uh, of uh, the regular dream experience, and and also sometimes benefiting from it when, when it points to the issues Uh, that you're ignoring or denying or whatever
0: that's a a terrific point robert because you know as as we know lucid the way i relate to both lucid dreaming dream yoga and even sleep yoga is they are just skillful means on this extraordinarily large bandwidth or spectrum of of nocturnal experience and and in many ways you know the charter as i see it is just establishing a more elevated and perhaps even sacred relationship to the nocturnal mind and and then a natural byproduct of that relationship as we both know from indigenous cultures that have this kind of relationship is is a is a, almost the discovery of a ready conversationalist if you will or just the dimension of mind that unfortunately we in the west have dismissed i mean even when we say things like oh it's just a dream," you know that's that's indicative of this uh, dismissive attitude that we have in the west and so by simply shape-shifting that attitude I think that's part of the lucid mindset that you're alluding to, um, and then honoring and appreciating um, even the non-lucid dream—the fact that you're having more recognition, you're remembering more dreams, um, that sort of thing—you know, celebrate the small successes. Also, something, um, and
1: I'm thinking as as we talk about this, sometimes when I interact with a person on my workshop and they tell me, "Oh, gosh, I haven't had a lucid dream in six months," I say, "You tell me your last lucid dream." And oftentimes in that last lucid dream, they ran into a fear. Oh, yeah. And what happens when you run into a big fear? You shut down, you turn away, you ignore, you deny, you repress it, the whole thing. And, and I go, look, here's what's happening here. <laughs> you, yeah. you have shut down because you don't want to face this next nut. You don't want to crack it you're still intimidated by it and once you are ready for it again then your lucid dreams will start up again but you've got to be ready and so by virtue of what you've shared with me i can see that you need to do xyz yeah and and oftentimes uh, when i have people who have had a good lucid dreaming history but all of a sudden something stopped go back to that last lucid dream see what the issue is And, and normally you can see that there's a a fear, a concern, a limiting belief, or, or something that's uh, that they don't want to deal with, and and that's that's why why things
0: have. Uh, that's a fa- that's a really great point, and and for me, I, I'm a, a, a big student of fear, um, and just I'm again so much to say here, but um, etymologically, you know, the word comes from a root that means fair f a r e, as in toll, and so um, fear is one of the most powerful deterrence for psychospiritual growth, because ego, you know, is afraid of the dark. Ego doesn't want to have its uh, cover removed, and so it hides and feeds in darkness, and so to me, I mean, I've spent, you know, one of the maxims of my life, uh, Robert, is, you know, if you really want to grow in this life, yeah, there's some provisional validity to what Joseph Campbell said, you know, follow your bliss, for sure, but if you only follow your bliss, you're going to get blissed out, and so to me, if i really want to grow in this life i follow my fear because that that's leading to to real growth. fear is a minion of ignorance and if i really want to penetrate the darkness of ignorance i have to go into and through my fear and so again having a really valuable map where you understand that when you come up against the flame toward you know the fires and barbed wire and the and all the booby traps of your unconscious mind that's actually really good news i mean it really means you're coming up against the membrane of the limited self-sense and fear is there waiting for you. Um, and so again, if you have a more complete map to say, "Hey, wow, you know this is this is actually a good sign. I'm starting to get somewhere." Then even that map alone can help you eliminate and, and I should say, illuminate and then potentially eliminate the fear. but that that's a terrific point about going back to the you know, previous dream that may have elicited that and then subconsciously deterred you. so. Right, and, and
1: I I do want to note uh, to people too that on occasion uh, you're giving you're given help in, in lucid dreams, and and in, in my first book I I called these uh, dream figures I called them re- review committees, so, oh. so I'd be in a lucid dream and and you know some very knowledgeable dream figure would come up and ask me would I please follow it uh, it has some other dream figures that want to talk with me. And, and normally at that time, I just took it as a big joke and I would follow them and, and see what these dream figures had to say. But oftentimes I, I realized on Awakening that it was kind of like a review committee. They were uh, kind of gauging my progress. Sometimes they would literally uh, kind of uh, talk about how aware I was or how I wasn't aware. But I remember at one of these, so, so I was going quite deep, but At one of these, the gentleman at the end who asked me to come in and and talk with the group, and and this group was was really asking me just incredibly probing questions. At the very end of it, he held a book that was in white leather, and he pointed to a chapter. And and basically, the chapter was on something like uh, good and evil and decadence and and corruption and, and something like that. And when I woke up, I thought, why did that guy show that to me at the very end of that lucid dream? And then a couple of days later, it hit me that, that I wasn't going deeper into lucid dreaming because I wondered if inherent evil existed. Yeah. And, and that's a very uh, Protestant uh, Christian notion that's floating around in the deeper subconscious parts of my mind. And I realized in my next lucid dream, dream, I have to find out if inherent evil exists, if this system that we're all part of initially had within it inherent evil, because if it does, I'm going so far deep, you know, I better be on the lookout and 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 so, so I talk about this next lucid dream I had that I decided to go in search of evil. And I keep going and going and going and going until finally I get to the end of the cosmos. And then there was a voice and it told me, the light upholds the darkness, something like that, then it said, everything is sacred and alive, and then it said, even the space between your fingers is sacred and alive, and as soon as I heard that last part, even the space between my fingers is sacred and alive, then when I woke up, I knew that inherent evil doesn't exist. It's not yeah. to say that people can't be ignorant and mean and brutal and cruel and hateful and all that. I'm not saying I'm not saying egos can do that to other egos and, and all. I'm just saying that inherently built into the system, uh, after that I realized that evil wasn't built into the system. And, yeah. and that allowed me to to keep going further.
0: Again, it, yeah. This ties in perfectly to what we were talking about earlier, you know. Um, that uh, type of uh, fear or evil is just another imputation. It's a a product of the reifying ego um, that just makes these, it projects its image onto anything, including things like fear. And and so the quote that came to my mind here, Robert, is from Kashmir Shaivism. this beautiful um, rendering where it says, you know, there is no darkness within, only light unseen. Um, And having that map will really allow you to penetrate the, the illusion of darkness and realizing that, like Barbara Brown Taylor says, you know, darkness is not dark to God. The light, the dark is as bright as the day. Um, but I do want to I share a question. There was a question that was submitted to us. Um, okay. I want to share with you this completely in line with what we're talking about here. And so let me pass this on to you. This, this person, Ronan, wants to ask you this question, and I think it's quite an, a good one. So this is what he says. When I get attacked by a dream figure of any kind, I have this bad habit of killing them off. Even if it takes multiple dreams and multiple methods, I will destroy them. I know I'm supposed to engage them in dialogue, but there is wisdom in these dream characters that I'm missing out. How can I slow down this impulse to destroy any dangerous or threatening dream characters long enough to engage them in dialogue? So what can we say to Ronan? That's a wonderful question.
1: Uh, And uh... I know at the I know at the time um, that it only seems like he has two choices to either fight or flee. Uh, that those seem like his only two choices. But I want to tell you, in a lucid dream, when you're truly consciously aware, you see that you have multiple choices. So if this was my particular experience, when the when the horrible mean monster was coming towards me. I would send it whatever I perceived that it lacked. So mm-hmm. if, it, if it lacked understanding from my heart, I would send it understanding. Or if it lacked a sense of being loved and cared about, I would send it love and caring. And when you do that, when you from your heart begin to send it love and compassion, acceptance, understanding, whatever it is that it's lacking, you'll watch it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and less threatening and less fearful. It might change into a child or something. And if you completely keep doing this until you utterly accept it, normally it'll explode into light and that light will come back into you and, and it'll energize and change your life.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah. if you keep fighting it, it'll always be there. What gets resolved yeah. if you run from it it'll still be there what gets resolved so fighting and fleeing they're not creative responses The creative response of sending it what it lacks that's the only thing i've seen that'll totally take care of it and when when you see one of these dream figures burst into light and that light come into you you realize oh my god i'm reclaiming i'm integrating with this energy and it'll be all for the good
0: Exactly, as you know, you know we both know this is what Jung referred to as the process of individuation, and, and this is a great gift that that dreams um, offer. Certainly, uh, so-called unwanted dreams, nightmares, and the like that these these are just uh, rejected, disenfranchised aspects of our own, you know, kind of body, mind, spirit matrix coming back for integration and healing. And and unless that integration and healing and acceptance, being willing to say yes to, in a certain sense, love it to death. It takes place that that residue of undigested, unmetabolized experience is just going to keep recycling. Um, It's going to be continue to kind of harbor in and as the unconscious mind itself, which then, as we know, continues to drive our so-called conscious lives. You know, we we think we think we're living conscious lives, but uh, like Christ said, "Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do." We're, We're actually driven largely by avoidance strategies to keep us away from these unwanted experiences. And so, when they, again, when they arise in the unconscious mind expressed in the dream venue, when we have this view, it's a fantastic opportunity to resolve these um, rejected aspects and and to continue to grow. And I'm sure in your experience as well, this is one of the ways I have continued to use my um, dreams, and, and to the point where, I, I mean, I haven't had a nightmare in, in several decades, because it was precisely this approach that you're referring to, Robert, where I would turn around, face the disenfranchised monster, whatever it was, um, dialogue in it, with it, or fundamentally embrace it until it eventually dissolved back into me. And then I wake up lighter, freer. And you know, again, yeah, it's a fantastic way to use the nighttime mind, almost like a, a therapy session where you can you know, really resolve these undigested aspects of experience. So. Um, really beautiful. I wonder if you've got just a little bit more energy. I think, however, one of the, the most exciting parts of your book, um, uh, Gateway, is uh, how you talk about lucid dreaming and healing. Um, it's, it's somewhat along the lines of what we're just talking about here. You have a beautiful section in this book where you talk about um, potentials for emotional healing, psychological healing, and even physical healing we get a lot of questions on our nightclub about this type of thing. Um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the site because I, I was really quite taken with the way you elaborate on that in your book. So can you share a little bit, some bullet points around this incredible benefit that working with dreams provides? You know, it, it truly is
1: amazing um, to use lucid dreaming for healing and, and, uh, I, I have received so many fascinating lucid dreams of people who have apparently healed themselves or taken care of an issue uh, by doing it in a lucid dream. So, so, so here, here would be an example that was sent into the magazine uh, Lucid Dreaming Experience. Uh, this gentleman, uh, Ray Brannon he lives out there on the West Coast. Uh, sounds like kind of a high-powered guy. But anyway, um, he developed GERD, our gastroesophageal reflux disorder. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was so bad that he could not sleep laying down. He mm-hmm. had to sleep in an easy chair, because even with all the medicines and everything that he was taking, um, his, his GERD was still in such a bad way. So he read my uh, first book, he, he got to the chapter on physical healing and lucid dream. And he thought, "What do I have to lose? The the doctors can't get this under control. The medicines aren't doing much of anything." And so the first time he became lucidly aware, he stopped what he was doing and he stabilized the lucid dream. And then he remembered that he wanted to try to heal himself. And, and so he hadn't really worked out much of a plan, uh, but he but I think he kind of uh, pointed his hands at his uh, at his gut and and said. Uh, now with grace, I heal this space or or, or something like that. It, 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 anyway, he said when he woke up, he, he felt maybe 20% better. Wow. But Then he realized that he, he had to kind of get a little bit more deeper. So he, he read the chapter again and the next time he became lucid, he was in an area and there were all these friendly dream figures there. And so he looked at all the friendly dream figures and he said, Hey, is there anybody here? Who would like to try to help me heal, heal, heal me? And and, and all of the dream figures uh, nodded positively that they would try to help. And he said suddenly they all put out their hands and from their hands came blue light or some sort of light that was that came into his uh, torso. And he said when he woke up he knew that the GERD had come to an end. And he he said within a night or two he was sleeping in bed with his wife. For the first time, in a long time, the GERD disappeared. The symptoms never came back. Wow. Whatever it was, um, got resolved in the lucid dream. That's and, and So there's there's all sorts of examples of people who have used lucid dreams for physical healing. It's it's truly powerful. But the one thing that I would want to say uh, in my chapter, I really encourage people to use their own kind of locus of control. And and by that, I mean that they act with their own knowledge. So for example, some people I suggest that they become lucidly aware and maybe between their hands, create a ball of healing light and then put the healing light on your knee or ankle or whatever's hurting, intending for it to be healed. Or maybe you might want to put healing energy into your right hand and then you can stick your right hand into your uterus or whatever, and 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 heal the cyst or the fibroid or whatever it is. And and some of these people have gone back to the doctor later, and they no longer have a cyst. They no longer have a, hybro, a fibroid, or the the out of control bleeding, the internal bleeding has stopped, or whatever it is. That there's just truly powerful. Uh, um, stories of lucid dreamers who have apparently healed themselves in the lucid dreams.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it really makes sense, doesn't it, Robert? Because, you know, again, in the, in the Eastern view of body, um, this isn't just spirituality. Now we're talking actually medicine, you know, the the gross body is a expression, manifestation of the subtle body. And when we're working with dreams where it's a subtle dimension of mind that is supported by a subtle body, as you know, and so by working to transform the subtle body, um, it's the basis of things like acupuncture, moxibustion, and the like. But I think we can we can do it here. In fact, to a certain extent, as you know, uh, Dr. Carl Simonton, you know, his work with guided imagery, he's discovered that people who supplement standard radiation and chemotherapy with guided imagery have, uh, you know, up to a 50% um, kind of greater increase in, in healing response. And so there is no greater kind of container or environment of imagery than there is in dreams and lucid dreams um, and so you know visualizing your body is healed and you know, complete doing the things that you right. kind of guessed. Um i have worked with this in this regard and i think it represents this, is so much of lucid dreaming does um future you know, javelins uh, throwing the javelin into the future of possible healing psychological physical emotional spiritual to work with these more foundational domains makes complete and utter sense to me um, so I, you, and you never,
1: I, I, I do want to mention that uh, also when Stephen LeBurge he, he did a whole series of um, yeah. um, scientific studies in, in lucid dreaming where he wanted to see if the lucid dream event had any physical effect on the body right and, and so he had the lucid dreamers become lucidly aware signal they're lucidly aware beginning the experiment and then he'd have them in the lucid dream uh, flex their right arm and then flex their left arm in an alternating pal- panor- pattern. Sorry, and and he discovered because he'd put some uh, um, uh, descriptive uh, uh, things around their forearms that they were having subliminal arm movements in a left and right alternating power patterns, showing that uh, that these lucid dream events that you think are just occurring in the dream actually affecting the physical body why they happen and and there's some other studies he did I will not go on but there's probably four or five studies he did that showed that the lucid dream activity actually had a physical effect on the physical body
0: isn't that amazing it's it's you know it's, it's it's more than just kind of the neuroplasticity thing it's just what we do with our mind affects our brain what we do with our sleeping mind affects our brain changes our brain but it also affects our body. I mean, it, it's it's not just left a neuroplasticity, where you know, the entire, not as just the, the physical body, but you know, what I call optic plasticity. I mean, all of reality is plastic. All of reality is, is fundamentally dreamlike. And so again, when we get this kind of motif of, of you know, softening our views of things, and when we realize the kind of more plastic nature of things, it's a sense of freedom, a sense of greater control, that we're not so stuck in this uh, kind of solidified, reified world of our own making. Um, you know, it's like I say, we are the ones that transform a fluid, dreamlike world into concrete and, real, and then bitch about why it's so hard. Um, and so this is a, another kind of suggestion along those lines. Um, I wanted to close, you know, we, we're running out of time, and you're so generous with your time here, but you are also one of the few writers Robert, that talks about the relationship of lucid dreaming to hypnosis. Uh, I have some training in a clinical hypnosis. I work at, I work with it in some of my patients. Um, but there aren't that many people that, that speak about it as you do. Um, can you riff a little bit about your understanding and experience of the relationship between lucid dreaming and hypnosis? Well,
1: um, so I remember uh, as a young guy, uh, probably 18, um, learning about hypnosis. And I even went to... Uh, learned self-hypnosis with a hypnotherapist in, in Wichita, Kansas. And and so self-hypnosis for me was something that I practiced a lot during my college time. But you begin to see, and, and reading the Jane Roberts, Seth material, you, you really begin to see that in many respects, um, we're involved in something like a waking trance that, that our, our mind stream, our beliefs, our thoughts, emotions, and, and all just all come together and, uh, and, and keep it all alive, keep it all activated, keep the trance going. And so, uh, when you begin to observe the mind and observe your beliefs and expectations and focus, then, then you really get to see that, that we are in many respects hypnotizing ourselves. So, yeah. so I, I remember, uh, because we were talking about healing, um, uh, um, I don't know when this was, but a while back, um, I had hay fever every August, September uh, here in the middle part of America, and it was so miserable. I just hated you know, having, having to blow my nose all the time and couldn't sleep well, and oh my God, it was just horrible. But then I thought, wait a second, this is a mental creation. I've, I've come to believe in hay fever, wow. and so then I was very vigilant. So I knew that every time I began to think about hay fever and about hating August and September, I would say, no, not this year. This year I will breathe easily and naturally. Because wow. I knew I had to have a focus, an intent, a goal that, that I was trying to achieve. And I so I told myself, I, this year I will breathe easily and naturally. And and I was very, you'd see the TV commercials, pollen season, worst ever, and, and all that. And I'd say, nope, nope, not for me. This year, I will breathe easily and naturally. I'll tell you, the first year, I reduced the symptoms probably, I don't know, 60, 70%, whatever. The second year, I reduced to 90%. And now I basically don't have hay fever. I might have 1% or 2% of the symptoms, you know, when uh, August, September roll around. But But it's just that some of us, aren't watching our mind. We're we're thinking everything is going on out there. We don't realize how connected out there is with what's going on in here. Because uh, as a famous hypnotherapist, Milton Erickson said, the unconscious is always listening. (laughs) And, And when you begin to observe your mind stream, what you're telling yourself, what you're thinking, what you're believing, then you realize that you are the hypnotist that is hypnotizing yourself to believe the experience that you will then come to experience and so the only way is to get lucid about it and, and begin to change it if it's not to your liking
0: yeah I mean in many ways you know if the metaphor of waking up the Buddha being the awakened one is just one way to look at it I think it's utterly valuable valid to talk about the Buddha as the dehypnotized one. you know that we're, we're constantly like you're saying giving ourselves post-hypnotic suggestions, and, and I would argue that one of the most foundational post-hypnotic suggestions that we continue to give ourselves is to avoid fear, um, to avoid the fear of the truth of our inherent non-existence, um, fear of death, and, and basically you know born from that is this incredibly sophisticated avoidance strategy that really, in my opinion, constitutes the entirety of our so-called conscious lives, which is basically just trying to get away from these foundational truths that, from an egoic perspective, really can be related to is, is death, and that's why in these deeper practices, fear is fundamentally waiting for us, but, but basically the idea, I couldn't agree more with how it is that we're always talking to ourselves, we're always downloading, again, this kind of bi-directional thing, we're always downloading into the unconscious mind, which then uploads back into our so-called conscious experience, but that's what it, that's what it means to be asleep, that's what it means to be hypnotized, is that we fundamentally Think we have conscious control. We think we know what we're doing in our lives, but we're fundamentally sleepwalking. We're fundamentally hypnotized. Um and so have you had personal experiences, Robert, along along these lines, like in the dream state? Have you given yourself so-called post-dream suggestions for um, altering your daily behavior and daily life? Or do you do you like to do that so much spontaneously?
1: Yeah, it I, I... I played around with it and uh, played around with uh, influencing waking life uh, from the lucid dream state. But, 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 but normally, normally I don't talk about it much. It, it's just one of those things.
0: So, yeah. Cool. Well, my dear friend, I, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you to us spent this time with us. It's, it's, you know, I, to meet a kindred soul is always so inspiring to me. Um, I, I wanted to just close by giving you the opportunity to share with our audience how they can reach you, how they can learn more about you, Um, and if you want to share a little bit about what you're actively working on so people can connect with you. And part of our charter with with our little nightclub venture is to do exactly what we're doing here, which is to cross-pollinate wisdom with other leaders, thinkers, scientists, researchers, scholars, practitioners, and the like. Um, And so to whatever extent we can introduce um, our audience to your work, um, I'd love to give you the opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, I, I do j- just want to um, make a couple of preliminary comments. Uh, first, I do want to say that uh, after uh, uh, meeting this uh, lineage head of the Chinese esoteric Buddhism, um, I decided to join um, and become a member of Chinese esoteric Buddhism. So uh, so, so I, I do want you to realize that that, that, that I, I made... Um, made that decision. Um, also, I did want to say, um, earlier we were talking about uh, blue figures. Um, right. I, I did want to point out that I did go through a period of time where I dreamt of figures with blue skin color, and <laughs> oftentimes they reminded me of, uh, uh, frequently in um, Vedic art or, or in, in the Hindi uh, system, you'll see, I don't know, Shiva or Vishnu or whomever, uh, yep. with kind of blue skin tone. And, and so, I went through this whole period where I where I saw a lot of those folks, but but in the uh, when I kept going on and went beyond lucid dreaming, uh, that figure was composed of blue light. Even even though it had a human form, you could see through it because it was composed of blue light. So so I, I just want to make that that clear. But anyway, yeah. um, um, so how to connect? Uh, so I I have my books website is lucid, L-U-C-I-D, lucid advice. Dot com, And that's where you can kind of see what I'm up to and doing. Um, I wish I was a little bit more technically uh, adept. Uh, I, I would keep the website up a little bit better, but you can get kind of a basic sense. Um, also, we have our free online magazine, uh, Lucid Dreaming Experience, which is at dreaminglucid.com or luciddreammagazine.com. And, uh, and, and so those are the two primary ways to get a hold of me. Uh, I do twice a year the online workshops uh, with Guidewing. So that's Guide, G-I-D-E, Guidewing.com, and those are a lot of fun. They um, it's a 30-day thing, so there's a lot of time for people to play around and ask questions and have experiences. But uh, other than that, I I fly around, give talks. Uh, tomorrow I'm leaving to spend um, two weeks in Taiwan. Um, both of my books have been translated into Chinese, and uh, and so there's a lot of, of course, a lot of interest in there, especially in kind of a western view of of all this. And um, so I go around the world, but basically, um, I've devoted the rest of my life to lucid dreaming. I'm not the most uh, socially um, social media wizard out there, so you might have to reach out and try to find me instead of uh, figuring that. I will uh, figure out my way to find you, but uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. I do appreciate um, your work on all of this and just um, encouraging people to look deeper and uh, and explore these topics more thoughtfully.
0: Yeah, there, there's a, an entire cosmos here, you well know, it. and the fact, Robert, that you have dedicated your life to this is apparent. Um, you know, the depth of your your knowledge, your wisdom, and your expertise. In, in, um, the stories that you share, I think in particular, are really inspiring. So once again, my dear friend, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it's a delight to finally meet you, because listeners may not know, while I'm familiar with with Robert's uh, written work, we've actually never met in person. Um, so the, have the opportunity to spend a couple hours with you like this is extraordinarily generous on your part, and uh, perhaps we'll find another opportunity to do it again. But in the meantime, travel safe to Taiwan, uh, pleasant dreams, pleasant life, and uh, may our paths cross many times in the future, my friend.
1: Okay, okay. Be well and, and lucid wishes, everyone.
0: Take care, Robert. Double-taste.
1: Bye now.